My name is is Nick. If I haven't met you, uh, love to meet you afterwards. Um, thanks for thanks for stopping in, worshiping with us. Uh, we've been in Luke's gospel uh, for a while now. Now we're in chapter four. It's going to be the third week in this section of chapter four. We got one more, although it will be two weeks from now, I suppose. Um, I'm actually going to be. We got uh, Mr. Fuller coming next week. Uh, and then, which I'm excited about, and then I'll actually be gone the following, um, uh, I think at least, family reunion, Lord willing, and then um, I'll be back the, the week after that, to, and we'll draw this text uh, to a close. But for now, uh, third part, looking at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 12 is what we're going to read today. Um, if you need a Bible, ushers, happy to bring them around, raise your hand. Uh, If you don't own one, please keep it. If you promise to give it to your neighbor or someone who needs it, please keep it. Um, Beyond that, Luke chapter 4. I'll give you a second to find it. We'll read it and pray. You guys awake today? You guys all right? Is everybody ready? Okay. If anybody needs to stretch, now's the time. Here we go. All right. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands... They will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Does a fan of sports team ever get tired of watching their team win? I don't think so. And in the same way, Lord, we we rejoice with every victory we get to watch our Savior accomplish over the devil. 
I don't get tired of seeing my mediator, my representative, my righteousness, my Savior win. (laughs) For His glory and for my good. Satan, you have no place in our midst. We all know there is a mortal wound that's been delivered to your head. And that the children of God now in the Spirit of Christ have authority. To put their heel to your head as well. We ask you, Jesus, to come and to show yourself mighty, to show yourself powerful in our midst. We are not always aware of all the ways Satan is influencing us. And Jesus, we know that you are. And so we pray, come. Flex your cruciform muscle. for the sake of your people, their redemption, their freedom from slavery. I don't know the chains that are around people in this room or the ways the devil dogs them at night or the sins that he keeps playing before their mind. The accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. Jesus, be victorious here this morning. Meet us in your word. We don't get tired of watching Calvary's champion win again. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so um, I had an elaborate introduction. Scratched it all out for the sake of some uh, things I wanted to do at the end. So I'm actually going to get us right in to the text this morning. That's why I said if you needed a stretch, feel free to stretch. But here we go. Um, We're going to jump in this morning, uh, really there at verses 5 through 8, because um, if you recall, if you were here last week, we kind of tackled verses 1 through 4 in detail. Now we're moving on to the second temptation. So first temptation really was the idea of, uh, or was the, uh, what we would call like the wilderness temptation. Now, verses 5 through 8, we're moving to what we would call uh, perhaps the mountain temptation of Christ. It's where in Matthew's gospel, we see it plainly that the devil's taking Jesus up to a very high mountain, showing him the kingdoms of the world. But as we transition, um, From the first to now the second temptation, I I thought it might be helpful for us to see the devil here along the lines of like a fisherman. Okay, Um, it's 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 as if he's kind of like rummaging through his tackle box at this point, if you will, uh, trying to find something, the right bait that will get his target, the Messiah, on the end of his line. So we're watching the devil kind of scramble here, looking for, rummaging through his tackle box, looking for, what can I put on the end of the hook that's going to get this Son of God there? And my my father-in-law, he's here. 
uh, Mike. Um, actually, t- I'm not much of a fisherman. <laughs> I think it runs in my family. My dad wasn't much of a fisherman, so I'm not much of a fisherman. Uh, but he took us fishing a couple weeks ago, and I was reminded afresh, hey man, it's all about the bait, really. It is. If you, if you, if you have the wrong bait, you'll sit there all day. It's still nice and pretty, right? But it's like, you, you won't even get a nibble. <laughs> but, if you get the right bait on there, I mean, you could be getting hit all day long. And so as we're out there on the lake, now granted, nothing was very big, but we did see some guy pull up a, a decent sized trout, I think it was, and, and we're like, what bait were you using? It's all about getting the, the, the right bait. And so in our text, Satan, it seems, has just kind of reeled up his line from the first cast. He's baiting his hook and getting ready for a second. Let me read it. Verses 5 through 7 here. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Here's what I'm seeing the devil do here. It's as if he's saying, Okay, Son of God, so you didn't turn against your father in the face of extreme poverty, hunger in the wilderness? Can I get you to turn against your father in the face of extreme prosperity? So it wasn't starvation in the wilderness and a little bit of bread that drew you away. Perhaps, perhaps, now I'll give you mountaintop experience and i show you the glory of the world, all of its kingdoms. Perhaps that will draw you from your Father. Break allegiance. I think um, certainly we would all agree that there is temptation in times of want, right? Times of what you'd call maybe poverty. Times of pain and suffering. We get that there's temptations there. When, 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 when we're kind of suffering under the burden of, of cancer or the loss of a loved one or, or bankruptcy or, you know, whatever, foreclosure on your house, whatever, we understand that in those moments there is temptation to do what? To turn on God and say, where are you, God. You're supposed to be kind, loving, gracious, steadfast in love. All these things I read about, you're not kind. It seems to me you're out to get me. That's one bait on the end of the hook. But then there's another. There's another kind of bait here. There's prosperity. We see in our text that, that, that Satan is kind of using prosperity now to try to draw the son away from the father. What if you could have not just enough to survive the day, like your daily bread, turn this stone to bread? What if you could have not just enough to survive the day, but more than you could ever dream of? Would you leave God for that? 
What if I gave you everything? Would you leave God for that? I think if Satan can't get us to leave God because of our pain, he will try to get us to leave God because of the world's pleasure. If he can't get us to to doubt God's love, he will try to get us to doubt whether God is really the most pleasurable thing there is. If he can't get us to turn against God and say, hey, you are malevolent, you are cruel, he will at least get us to say, you're not the best thing. (laughs) I don't hate God, I just love all of this more. But it's a trap. You know that text, James 4.4, friendship with the world is enmity with God. If we want to take the world now, we have to stiff-arm God to get it. Enmity with God. So it's this sort of thing I think that the devil is doing here with Jesus. Um, If starvation won't turn you against God, how about sovereignty? How about the prospect of power and, and prosperity and pleasure? I will give you all of this, son. All you have to give me is your soul. Now, Satan makes some bold claims. I don't know if you've realized that as you're reading it. Uh, It's troubling to read it. He makes some bold claims. If you look closely there, he says, The kingdoms of the world have been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. And I'm sitting there reading that, and I'm going, kind of sitting back in my seat, "Are, are you serious? Is this true? And with the devil, you always need to ask that question, right? He's the father of lies. You gotta, is this true? Are the kingdoms of the world really the devil's to give in the first place? Now, some of us watching the news this last week would say, of course. <laughs> Isn't it obvious? Kingdoms of this world belong to him. Look at what's going on around us. Look what's happening just in our country, let alone if we pan out and look at the, the other nations and the other countries. This place is crazy. This place is broken. It's not a leap to say, hey, looks like it's in Satan's hands to me. But the biblical answer here is more complex and more nuanced. It's it's actually both yes, yes, the kingdoms are the devil's to give in one sense, but ultimately, no. This isn't the main point of the text, so I have to go quickly here, even though it's complex and, and honestly the scriptures don't even answer it sufficiently for us. The problem of evil and all these other things, God's sovereignty and all these things. But hear me out here. I just want to consider a commentator on this point for a moment. It says this, The devil claims absolute political authority has been given to him by God and thus presumes to commandeer God's authority to decide and divide. In one sense, this is true. Yes. For the devil exercises real power in this world. But ultimately, it is not true. No. 
For the devil's power is not equal to God's, but entirely subordinate to it. The devil possesses power only as long as the sovereignty of God allows. The answer, yes and no. Yes. Let me show you the yes here for a moment. Yes, he is called, this is Satan, guys, the ruler of this world. John 12, 31, John 14, 30. Yes, he is called the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 2, 2. Yes, he is called the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this world. Yes, he is called, yes, we're told, I'm sorry, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 1 John 5, 19. That sounds to me like a pretty big yes. In some sense, the kingdoms of this world have been delivered over to Him. But, no. There is everywhere a sense in the Scriptures that Satan is like a dog on a leash. He's on a chain. His time is short. That though he barks and bites and foams at the mouth... He will come to find that he's only served God's sovereign design in the end. If you need a few examples of this, you just turn to Job. He's got to come in and get permission to do to Job what he wants to do. And God says, this far and no further. And he flips the devil's vehemence on its head and turns it to blessing by the end. If you want another example, you look at Christ, who Job kind of typifies and foreshadows, who comes in and, and what does Christ do but give, give the devil permission to enter Judas, essentially. Giving him the morsel of bread. The devil enters and Judas does what was in his heart and Satan comes in and, and, and overcomes then uh, Christ on the cross who then turns it on his head in his resurrection and overcomes the devil with it. I don't know how you put all this together, but the answer is yes and no. <laughs> Genesis 3.15 promises his demise. Revelation 20.10 drives the last nail in the coffin. Let me read that to you. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur and he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Make no mistake about it, there will be no kingdom for the devil in the end. Yes and no. So, as uh, another commentator put it, as he's kind of wrestling with, is this, is this all just a lie, or what is this? One, one other commentator concludes, Satan offer, Satan's offer is at best an oversell, offering more than he can deliver. That's at best. And at worst, a lie. Nonetheless, the temptation was real. That's important. It wasn't just a farce. It wasn't just a game. The temptation for our Savior is real. Here's what we have to remember. God has long promised His Son the kingdom. A long promise. Throughout all the Old Testament, there's just the sprinklings of promises. One is going to sit on the throne of David forever. 
God's going to deliver the kingdom to His Son. And in His Son, God will actually deliver the kingdom in some sense to us as well. (laughs) But, as we looked at last week, it will be delivered only through many tribulations. Acts 14, 22. Many tribulations, then kingdom. So Satan slithers up to the son who knows these things in this moment. And he whispers to him, be done with all this tribulation nonsense. Why tribulation? Let's go mountaintop now. Let's get kingdoms Break your allegiance with the Father. Worship me. And it's yours now. You remember those three things I listed off last week that mark kind of the temptation that that Satan comes at us with. Defamation of God's character. Identity crisis. And the tyranny of the urgent. Get it now. Forget waiting. Forgo tribulation. Let me ask you, is there a snake at your feet these days? Is, is, is this, does this whisper that we're seeing here with our Messiah, does it kind of have echoings in your own heart and life? Is the devil coming at you in this way? Some of us might relate more with the first temptation. We're starving. We're, 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 we're empty. We're deficient. We're suffering. And we're tempted at that point to, to, to break uh, our allegiance with the Father just to survive another day. Give me bread. If God won't do it, I'll take it. But... Others of us might relate more to this second temptation. For some of us in this room, it it might seem like the world is at our fingertips. Like it's just right there for the taking. This is Silicon Valley. This is like the pinnacle of the modern world. And some of you guys are in the big companies and you know how to play the game and, and, and you, the salary of your dreams is within your reach and you're climbing the top and soon you could have everything you ever wanted and more. The world is just right there. The only catch, you have to sell your soul to get it. Consider a text I actually just came to in my devotions this last week. I wanted to read it to you here. It's in uh, 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. You'd be content with that in Silicon Valley? 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. And we know from the context of 1 Timothy, he's used that phrase before, it's a snare of the devil. So let me read that again. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Isn't that the irony of it? The tragic irony of it. Going after the sure way to pierce yourself with pangs, grief, and sorrows, the sure way to plunge yourself into ruin and destruction is actually to marshal all of your energies towards getting a kingdom for yourself now. The very thing you think will make you happy and satisfied is the thing that's going to be like a knife through your soul. Piercing yourself with many pangs. It's a suicide run many of us are taking. Hopefully not us, I should say, but us in our city, our country, in our world. Deep inside, you know this sort of kingdom isn't going to last. That's where the grief comes from. That's where the pain is, the sorrow. You know you can't secure it from, from moth that eats, from rust that corrupts, from thief that steals. You can't secure it. And so even if you get it, you know I don't actually have it. It's a horrible place to be. The baited hook is hanging in front of our Savior now. What's He going to do? Verse 8 of our text. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God in Him only shall you serve. (laughs) He responds with yet another quote from the book of Deuteronomy. Like I said, every response is going to come from the book of Deuteronomy. This time it's Deuteronomy 6.13. I want to read it in context again, remembering uh, that we are listening to Moses addressing the people of Israel as they're in the wilderness about to enter the promised land. That's the book of Deuteronomy. Here's Deuteronomy 6, we'll read verses 10 through 15. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full... Then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Here's verse 13 that Jesus quotes. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. And by His name you shall swear. 
You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Do you hear that? So God is giving Israel prosperity, abundant, overwhelming prosperity. I'm going to give you all this stuff, vineyards and, and produce and, 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 and riches that, that you did not earn, you do not deserve, you didn't work for. The only thing I ask is that you, you remember my grace, you remember my love, and you love me only in return. where does Israel go immediately and then it just descends from there they fell in love when they got in the land and they had all this abundant prosperity milk from flowing with honey all that sort of stuff they had all this prosperity they didn't fall in love with God more in love with the God who saved them, showered His grace upon them. They fell in love with His stuff. And they turned from Him. They forgot Him. This is Hosea, God speaking through the prophet Hosea, kind of near the end of Israel's time in the promised land, before the exile, because it's coming. Hosea 13, 4-6 says this, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full, they were filled, and their heart was lifted up Therefore, they forgot me. They got the prosperity. They got the riches. So they forsook the God who gave it to them. They forgot me. Resonates with me. Because God showers us with grace. And so often we forget our exodus moment. And we forget we owe it all to Him. We start laying claim to things like it's ours, like it's our, we're entitled to it. And we forget, don't we? So back in our text in Luke, unimaginable power and prosperity is offered to the Messiah on the one condition that he forget the Lord his God and turn to another. But Jesus will not bite He will get His kingdom, but not now. Not with a reach for the the forbidden fruit. Get the glory now. No, that's not how He's going to do it. He's going to receive the kingdom from His Father's hand, in His Father's timing, according to His Father's will, even through the cross. Our call is the same, brothers and sisters. I wonder if you know that. Through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom. Or, 
Take up your cross daily. Follow me. There's a cross that we're called to bear, and it is hard, and the devil will come. Why? Why all this tribulation nonsense? Put down the cross and live it up. May may the Savior give us strength by His Spirit to say no. We move now, verses 9 through 12, in the temple temptation. Um, Hopefully you're still trekking with me. I'm going to kind of climb to a climax here. The temple temptation, verses 9 through 12. Now, in this uh, third and final temptation recorded for us, Satan gets, it seems to me, particularly cunning. It's crazy. He's always learning. He's always adapting. And, and, and so, as we look at kind of the first two temptations, and as Satan has kind of dealt with Jesus there, two things become particularly clear about this Son of God. One, He trusts and is fully submitted to His Father. That's become clear about Jesus at this point. Secondly, He values and is deeply committed to the Word. To the scriptures. Satan couldn't turn the son from his father with pain or prosperity, poverty or prosperity. And, and every time uh, Jesus fought back the serpent with scripture, it is written, it is written. He's deeply, or he trusts and is fully submitted to his father. He values and is deeply committed to the scriptures. Satan says, I could work with that. I could work with that. So he's back in his tackle box. He's back in his tackle box. He's baiting his hook for one final cast. What's he going to do? I'm going to bring both of those things together. Submission, trust to the Father, value for God's Word. Let's wrap it all up around the hook. Cast out one more. Read it with me, verses 9 through 11. And he took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He's quoting scripture here, you guys. He's saying, okay, you trust God is going to look after you. You trust God's word. All right. Well, what says trust and surrender? Like literally throwing yourself into the Father's hands. And you like scripture? Here's a couple scriptures to to prove what I'm asking you to do is valid. Very well might be God's will. It's in the Bible. Now, we do well to step back for a moment and observe this profound fact before I go any further, that the devil quotes Scripture. That ought to sober us as we consider it. What it means is that that merely quoting the Bible, you guys, doesn't make the one quoting or the position held 
or proved supposedly by that quote? Biblical. Quoting the Bible doesn't necessarily make one biblical. Church history bears this out undeniably. The worst heretics in the church are the ones who who are such with the Bible in their back pocket. it's, it's It's the text, it's the scriptures that Satan uses to lead the people of God astray. If it just came at us with, with the philosophies of the world, a lot of us wouldn't bite. But if he comes at us with Scripture, something we value, he could twist us and we don't even know which way is up. Well, God says it. Okay. Perhaps the prototypical example of this is actually found among the Jews themselves. Let me ask you this. Why did they put Jesus to death? I mean, there are a number of reasons. Here's the reason they gave. We know it's because of jealousy. We know it's because of sin. We know it's because of the darkness that corrupts man's heart. But what reason did they give for putting Jesus to death? You want me to tell you? (laughs) Chapter and verse, man. Jewish orthodoxy. Jesus, have you not read our, 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 our constitutive verse, the, 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 the verse we, we recite like every morning, the Shema? Have you not read this? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If you are claiming to be the Son of God, you are making yourself equal to God. We are monotheists. Therefore, you have to go crucify Him. The devil used Scripture to kill the Messiah. Do you understand that? It's orthodoxy. It's chapter and verse that gets us into trouble so often. We can actually deny the Bible even as we quote it. But it will all we will always be when we do that, when others do that, it will always be found out in the end. It will always be exposed. The truth will always come to light in the end. And it's amazing how it comes to light for the devil here. The devil quotes from Psalm ninety one. Okay, and this is actually a great lesson in, in hermeneutics or in biblical interpretation. The, the, the biggest heresies come when you just lift a verse out from its context with no regard for the, the narrative as a whole. It's precisely what Satan does. He thinks he's sly. He thinks he's got something here to prove. Hey, the Messiah... It's going to be fine. It's actually good for you to kind of throw yourself down and, and, the, and the, the Father, His angels, will be there for you. Look, it's in the Bible. Read it in context, Satan. Read it in context. It's amazing. Because what we see is that he's quoting from a text that actually prophesies his own, Satan's, demise. <sighs> Look at this. Verses 11 through 13 in Psalm 91. He quotes 11 and 12. Verse 13 says, the devil's done. Verse 11, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Verse 13, You will tread on the lion 
and the adder, the young lion, and the serpent, you will trample under foot. In other words, oh, it is true. It is true that the angels will preserve the foot of the Messiah. They won't let you strike your foot against the stone. They will preserve the foot of the Messiah. But they are preserving His foot so that He can with it trample on the serpent in fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 where it says, what? He will bruise your heel, foot, but the Messiah is going to bruise your head. That foot's coming down on your head. The text with which Satan is trying to undo the Messiah is actually (laughs) the very prediction of the Messiah's undoing of Satan. He will, uh, I'm sorry, the serpent you will trample underfoot. Now, we might again wonder, um, as we did kind of with the bread, where's the temptation in this temptation? If I'm looking at it and, 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 and I'm seeing, okay, throw yourself down and God will catch you, I'm thinking, where's really the harm in that? Where, where is this real, like this, this climactic moment of temptation in that? Uh, we don't really see it. In fact, it kind of seems like Satan is calling Jesus to do the sort of thing some of you might have done at like Christian summer camps. Where, you know, you know that game where you kind of like fall and they catch you? Uh, have you ever done this? Nobody's done this? To build, you know, what's, what do you do that for? Like, oh, okay, everybody lines up and somebody's behind you and you have to go, oh gosh, and they're there for you, you know? And it's supposed to build camaraderie and build trust. Like, that seems like a good thing, but hold on a minute. Isn't that the problem? Did you hear me there? If you need to build trust... Does that not indicate that you're not, you, you, you kind of are lacking at that point? Trust? And you need to kind of, you need to get that trust. We're going to build this trust. So we're, we're kind of testing here. I, I'm coming, I'm going to fall back. I don't know you. I'm not sure of who you are, but this is how we start to get to know one another. And when you're there for me, then I know, okay, I can trust you. This is good. We've got a team. So here's what's happening. Essentially, it's saying, though in one sense I'm sure of you, in another sense I'm quite suspect. Will you actually be there for me? So there's this kind of, I trust you, but I don't trust you. Let's make sure you're there when I fall. Here's again the the subtlety of the devil. Right? By all accounts, it looks like throwing oneself down would actually be an expression of, of great faith. It looks like, wow, that would require a lot of faith to do that. But, as one commentator puts it, truly such an act is unbelief masquerading as faith. Unbelief masquerading as faith. There's, hear me now, there's a question in this about God's ability and willingness to provide and protect. Will he be there for me? There's a question about Jesus' identity. uh, The devil comes to him again. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, well, Jesus is is saying, let's see if I am. There's 
a question or there, there's kind of in this a demand for immediate proof instead of trusting and waiting. Again, this tyranny of the urgent idea. Instead of just, no, I know I'm the Son because He said I'm the Son. I know I'm loved because He said in my baptism I'm loved. I know He'll provide for me because it's who He is. Instead of that, it's, let's make sure. Let's make sure He'll be there for me. Let's force the Father's hand. Now, so such an act far from expressing faith in God, would actually be a slap in God's face. I think we are tempted here as well, right? Hear me on this. We're always kind of looking for some external proof of His love. I mean, I do this all the time. Do you not do this? We're, we're, we're kind of like, this is the image in my mind. We kind of... Uh, draw our conclusions about God's love um, for us, like like that little schoolgirl that's out in the front yard uh, picking, you know, petals from daisies. Where where we're kind of we're kind of playing that game. He loves me. He loves me not. Oh oh, su- oh sweet. Okay, so so I just got a raise. He loves me. I just got fired. I don't know where my life's headed. He loves me not. I just got a new car. He loves me. (laughs) I just got in a car accident. It was my fault. I was texting while driving. He loves me not. We play this game with our circumstances. He loves me. He loves me not. But, I wonder if you hear it. From the cross, there's a voice. No stammering, no stuttering, no waffling, no hesitation. Loud and clear. I love you always and forever. In good times and in bad. Through it all. There's no question of the Father, the Son, Spirit's love for us because of the cross. And so for us to play this game is to kind of play in the devil's hand a little bit. Mm, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And he would say in Romans 8, if I, with, if I didn't withhold my only Son, how will I not also with Him give you all things? It just takes a little time. Trust me. The one who trusted in his father's love through death will love us through the same. We can trust his love now and forever, no matter how hard it gets. And it is hard, you guys. I understand that. And Jesus is there to walk with you through the valley. So the baited hook is hanging yet again in front of our Savior. What is He going to do? We're not surprised at this point that He throws Scripture back in the face of temptation. Verse 12, Jesus answered Him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I see underneath, I know what you're doing, Satan. Get behind me. There's going to be no testing here. I trust. No testing, trusting. 
trust what my father said. He loves me. He's well pleased with me. He's going to protect me. I don't need to force his hand to prove it now. He'll be there for me even if I don't see it in the end. So another verse quoted from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6.16 this time. And it's another blow to the head of the serpent. This Son of God, unlike Israel and Adam before Him, will not bend His knee. This is where we're going to start drawing things to a close. I want to read um, from uh, the context there, Deuteronomy 6.16, that actually connects us to a larger story in Exodus 17. Deuteronomy 6.16 and, and, uh, brings us back into, actually, if you read it in its fullness, uh, brings us back into uh, a story from, from Exodus 17, the wilderness wandering. But here's what Deuteronomy 6.16 says. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. This begs the question, how did Israel test God at Massa? So we go there. Immediately following the story of manna and bread from heaven, Exodus 16, comes the story of Massa and water from a rock, Exodus 17. Both, interestingly enough, Jesus quotes from the fight the devil. Exodus 17, 1 through 7. Let's just listen to the story. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin. That's just the name of it. That's crazy, but yeah. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the name of the place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Israel tested God in the wilderness. We know you freed us from the Egyptians yesterday. But what does that matter if we're thirsty and we die of thirst today? They'd learn nothing about the provision and protection of God and they were not trusting but looking in the immediate. And they said, if you're a God of love, show me. So Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 16, 6.16, aware of this background, as if to say, I will not fall to the same line of thinking. I will not push 
for his provision or protection. I will trust in the Lord. I will not put the Lord, my God, to the test. But Jesus is saying more here, is he not? Just like last week, I mean, in all these temptations, I didn't draw it out of the second one, but in all these temptations, and like last week, we see the gospel of the cross hidden in plain sight in every one of Jesus' responses. We remember what made clear last week, that underneath all of this surface combat is kind of this subterranean combat. There's this underlying warfare that's going on between the devil and Jesus. And that is, the devil is, is, is ultimately aiming to get the Son off the cross. He knows why the Son has come. He knows that the cross is in the future and that the cross would be His undoing. And so the devil is here at the beginning trying to set the Son on a trajectory that would have Him denying the cross at the end. That's underlying all of this. Why do you think Satan takes him to the temple for this temptation? If it's a, if it's a temptation about, hey, throw yourself down from a high spot and God will catch you, why not do that on the very high mountain they were just at? Why go to the temple to talk about throwing down and angels protecting? Why go there? Because this is where the Lamb of God will be offered for the sins of the world there in Jerusalem. This is where Jesus is going to go to die. (laughs) If Satan can get Jesus to start doubting his Father's love for him in this place now, he just might be able to get him to come down from that cross later. Let's get you started thinking the Father will protect you. The Father won't let you hurt. The Father won't let you die here in the place where you're going to die. If I can sow that seed when you get to the cross, you just might come down. But Jesus will not have it. He quotes from the text He does to rub this in the devil's face. No, I will not put the Lord my God to the test. And Satan, do you remember Massa? Do you remember the narrative in Exodus 17 that Deuteronomy 6.16 is recalling? Do you remember the groaning and the grumbling of God's people? Do you remember the, the, do you remember the victory You were so close to having. You thought you'd won until God responded to His people's sin with grace, with water from a stricken rock. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink water from a stricken rock so that sinners can live. Satan, that rock is me. 1 Corinthians 10, 4. 
I am God standing there on the rock before Moses being struck with the very uh, staff that struck the Nile, turning it to blood. Now, now that staff is turning rock into water. Blood, rock, water for my people. I'm going to die here. Grace is flowing to the people of God and there is nothing you can do to stop me. I'm on my way to Jerusalem, to the temple, where I will be condemned. And when the staff of God is held over me on that cross, and it's about to come down on my back, the full weight of His wrath, I will not call for legions of angels to protect me. Matthew, where is that? 26.53 Oh Peter, I could call on my father and legions of angels would stop this now. But how else would the scriptures be fulfilled? We're going through with it. I will not call on the angels to keep me from bashing my head against a rock. I will trust my father through death. And when I've risen, you'll know what I'll find? The accuser of my brothers has been thrown down. Revelation 12.10 Satan has been relentlessly attempting to turn Christ away from the cross, but Jesus has even more relentlessly been turning Satan right back towards it. You will not, you will not deviate my line of sight from the cross. That's why I've come. And you will be thrown down. And my people, my people will be brought out into a greater exodus of freedom. Everlasting. He's going to overcome the evil one and now we do as well in Him. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, At every point, you're victorious. At every point, you resist. Trust the Father. Love the Father. Know the Father's love. Know your identity in Him. You're waiting on Him. God, help us. Jesus, help us. We know the whole history of the Scripture says we cannot do this in ourselves. And you're not not looking to us. You know what's in man. You know what we're made of. And so God, as a church, we look to You. We look to the only One who's overcome these things. We look to the only One who can help us overcome. And promises that He will. We worship You, Jesus. It's in Your name that we pray. Amen.